morning, and welcome to Greater Than Code, episode number 237. I'm Jessica Kerr, and I'm happy to be here today with my friend Amando Escamilla. Hey, Jess, thanks. I am happy to be here with my friend Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey, and we're all here with Andrea Goulet. Andrea is a sought-after keynote speaker for conferences around the world, empowering audiences to deepen their technical skills for understanding and communicating with others. She is best known for her work defining empathy-driven development, a framework that helps software engineers anchor their decisions and deliverables on the perspectives of the people who will be impacted by what they create. Andrea is a co-founder of Corgibytes, a software consultancy that helps organizations pay down technical debt and modernize legacy systems. You can recognize her by the JavaScript tattoo on her wrist. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, welcome. Nice to be here. We always like to start with a question which I think you're prepared for. That is, what is your superpower, Andrea, and how did you acquire it? Yeah, first of all, I just love that y'all ask this. I think it's just such a nice way to get to know different people. You know, I was thinking about this because you sent it a little bit ago, and I was thinking maybe empathy, given the work I do, but I don't actually think that's it. I feel like I'm constantly trying to learn more about empathy, but I do think that what my superpower is, is distilling complexity. So I went back and looked at, you know, kind of what the thread is of all the recommendations I've got on LinkedIn and things like that. And it's not something that I would necessarily say that I noticed, but it's something that other people have noticed about me. And the idea of taking a really abstract and kind of big, gnarly, complex topic and being able to distill it down to its essence and then communicate either what the importance is or what the impact is to other people. And I think that's why I've gravitated towards big, gnarly things like legacy code, right? And because it's what motivates me is impact. And how do we have the work that we do make as big of an impact as possible? And so the way I got into software was really a twisty and kind of windy road. I started out as a copywriter. And, you know, I think that's where the distilling complexity comes down because I would sit with clients and, you know, learn all about their businesses. And then I would write typically a website or some kind of marketing material. And they would say, you said what was in my head and I couldn't say it. Wow. And and when I got into software, I had a friend of mine from high school, Scott, who's my co-founder at Corgi Bytes. And he came up to me because I had been writing about my writing. And he said, you're not a writer. You're actually a programmer because the way that your brain works, you're thinking in terms of inputs and manipulating data and outputs. And that's exactly what a programmer does. And so then, you know, he wanted to fix legacy code for a living. I didn't even know what that was at that point. I thought it was a good thing. And yeah, just, I found that my ability to both walk in and kind of understand not just the syntax of what's going on, but the business challenges and how everything links together. And then with that, you can create kind of a sense of cohesion on a team and getting different people to work together and different people to see each other's points of view. Because when you're able to distill, you know, a perspective over here 
and say, okay, well, this was what this person's trying to say and distill this over here. And okay, I think this is what this person's trying to say. I, I feel like a lot of times I act kind of like a translator, but it's taken me a long time. I've been in software 12 years now and I still have massive imposter syndrome. Like I don't belong because I'm not the fastest person on the keyboard. I really struggle with working memory. My visualization is really a struggle, but I do really great in an ensemble. And when I started ensemble programming, sometimes it's referred to as mob programming, I was like, I can do this. Oh my gosh, this makes sense and I belong. Yeah, and I think just over the years, little things like hearing the joke, I was at a conference Jess, I think this may have been ETE when you and I connected, but I heard a joke and it was, you know, I think Phil Carlton had first said it. It was like, there's only two hard problems in computer science, cache and validation, naming things. And then somebody else said off by one errors. And I remember being on, I was like, y'all think naming things is hard? Like, yeah. help me understand how that's hard. That's, oh my gosh, that's, that's hard. And to me, it just comes so naturally. And... Yeah, I think that's kind of the thing is figuring out where is your trait, where is your skill set. And then, yeah, I mean, I remember when I first started doing open source contributions. I haven't done those in a long time, but, you know, just going in and modifying the language on help messages and turning them from passive to active voice. And they got accepted and it was like on some high profile projects and it was like, I didn't really feel like I was even doing much. And I still feel like, is that even a big deal? But I think that's kind of the definition of a superpower a little bit is that yeah, you don't recognize you. that it's hard for <laughs> other people. Yeah. And so it's neat now that it's like that's, I'm starting to kind of come into my own and leaning into that and then helping other people see that the way that I approach naming things, the way I approach copywriting is actually in a very programmatic way. It's leaning on frameworks. It's leaning on patterns that I use over time. I know, Casey, you and I had talked last week about, like, when I first go to a conference, right, like, using open-ended questions versus closed-ended questions and, like, these little kind of communication hacks that I've developed over the years. And so now putting those together in a framework to help other people remember that when we're coding, we're not coding for a computer, we're coding through a computer for other people. The computer is just like a code is just a tool. It's a powerful tool. But uh, a lot of times I, I have hear a question say, for you, Andrea. Huh? Yeah. Uh, about that. I find myself switching gears between like word land and abstract land. Yeah. So if I'm coding and I'm not thinking in words, the naming is hard. But sometimes I can switch gears in a different headspace. It's like a different me. And then I'm like yeah. naming things really well, especially if I'm looking at someone else's code. I don't have to be an abstract land. They did that part already. Do yeah. you find yourself switching between the two? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And especially too, when you're writing prose, like there's two different kind of aspects of your brain. There's the creative conceptual side, and then there's the analytical rational side. And everybody has both, right? Yeah. And so it does kind of require you to kind of come out of the abstract side in that and then move into more of the analytical space, which is why I love pairing. I love coding as a group because then that way it's like the mental model is shared, right? And so I can kind of stay in my world of naming things really well or 
you know, mm, I don't know that we need to be that precise. If we try to like one, I was in one group and they were trying to have a timing thing and it was like down to the millisecond. And I was like, y'all, we don't, we don't need to be that precise. I just, we just need to have this check once every 10 minutes. And that saved like six hours of work. And so just being able to say that thing and kind of be the checkpoint. Yeah. Someone has to be super down in the details of what to type next. And it helps to have someone else thinking about it at the broader perspective of why are we doing this? Yeah. And that's me typically. And I love that role, but it's very different than I think what goes through people's minds when they envision a software developer. Oh yeah. Maybe they envision the things that software developers do that other people don't typing curly braces. Yeah. I still think of that when I'm doing it. When I think of myself as a software developer, I think of myself as the person who hasn't gotten up from their desk in five hours and is kind of hunched over, you know, just blazing fast, hacking on something that probably is kind of dumb. But <laughs> it, uh, when I don't spend my day like that, I don't really feel exactly like I've been doing my job, you know, and that's something that I, that I struggle with. Cause I know that's not like, that's not the job in its totality by any means. And it doesn't mean that I'm not getting good work done. Not even, right? job. not even close to most of the job. You're exactly right. Like you said, if you're sitting there for five hours by yourself, hunched over your computer, you're probably hacking on something dumb. You're right. Because <laughs> you've gotten off, off on, on a tangent somewhere without someone to be like, why are we doing this again? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I think that that has been a personal challenge of mine as well. I know there was a really flashbulb moment for me. Scott and I have been running our business together for a couple of years. And we had gotten on our first podcast and he was telling our origin story. And he used the phrase, Andrea, she's the non-technical founder. And when I heard it, I was like, how dare you? I have for two years been sitting right next to you. And then he said, well, that's the term you use to describe yourself all the time. We had been in a sales meeting right before I recorded that podcast. And that's literally the words you use to introduce yourself. So once you start calling yourself technical, I'll follow suit. And I know, like, it really made me think. And I think some of it is because whenever I go to conferences, I don't look like other people who code, especially 12 years ago. You know, I don't talk like the people who are typically stereo, you know, stereotypical developers. And the first question I would get asked, you know, probably 25 to 40% of the time from people I met were, hi, are you technical or non-technical? Really? Yeah. Ugh. Huh. And that would be the first thing out of the gate. And at the time, I didn't have the kind of mental awareness to go, I'm at a technical conference. I think you can assume I'm technical, right? Like, and the fact is, is like, I was scared to call myself technical. And it over the years, I'm just like, what does that mean to be technical? And why do we define people by like you are either technical or you have nothing, right? Non-technical, you have zero technical skills. You don't belong. And so after you had that conversation with Scott, did you switch to calling yourself technical? 
It has you been a journey. I start. I became very conscious of calling myself of not using non-technical. I'll sometimes then say like, you know, I struggle with syntax, and I'm really, really good at these things. Yeah. So when when I phrase things that way, or you know, I have engineers who are so much better and have much deeper expertise in Docker and Kubernetes than I do. I'm really good at explaining the big picture and why this happens, right? And so it becomes, I think what we do in software is that because we're so used to thinking in binaries, because that's the way we need to make our code work, right? True, false, if, else, yes, no. And that pattern naturally extends itself into human relationships too. Because I know that every single person who asked me that question in no way was trying to be rude or shut me out. I know that the intention behind it was kind and trying to be inclusive. But from my perspective, you know, when half the people walk up to you and go, do you belong here? Right. Cause that's kind of, then it's like, I don't know, do, do I belong here? Yeah. Right. And so that's an example of how, if, you know, if you're at a conference saying, what brings you here? Right? That's very open-ended, and then it gives everybody the chance to say what brings them here. And there's no predefined, do you fit in this bucket or that bucket? Are you part of us or are you part of them? It's open to surprise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I am really good at. That's my superpower is let's see the complexity, and then let's see the patterns, and let's figure out how we can all get good work done together. But you can't see the complexity unless you take a step back. Yeah. And yet Scott noticed that when you are thinking that way, you are thinking like a programmer. Because while software starts by getting us used to thinking in binaries, I should say programming. Yeah. It's us yeah. thinking in binaries. As soon as you get up to software and software systems, you have to think in complexity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you were saying, Andrea, the uh, I find myself nowadays better recognizing when I'm falling into that trap when I'm not talking about work stuff. You know, when I find myself saying, "Well, it's this or it's this," it's like, "Is it really? Is it really this or this?" Are these yeah. Or, the options? Yeah. Yeah. Do I do I have to eat Thai food or pizza tonight, or could I just eat ice cream or a salad <laughs> or yeah, like you know what I mean? I mean, it's a silly example, right? But like, I don't know. There's something about doing this for a while that I, like, I find that kind of this or that thinking, like wiring itself into my brain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's normal, right? And that's, that's human. Like we operate on heuristics, right? There's the whole like, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. And if you're spending majority of your time, you know, in this kind of thought pattern, adopting something else can be a challenge. And so to me, it's like trying to describe how the way I navigate the world in being able to name things well and being able to, you know, talk to new people and like connect dots, see patterns that I rely on frameworks just as much as I do when I code and trying to figure out what are those things, right? What are those things? 
So yeah, because you don't have to import the top level file from the framework in order to use it. So it's not explicit that you're using it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and so that's been my challenge is that, you know, as Scott is like, well, help me understand. I'm like, I, uh, I don't know. I do this. And so that was kind of where I nailed on empathy is really critical. And it's been fascinating because when I first started about five years writing and talking about empathy in software, the first thing I noticed were all the patterns. So, you know, a really well-written messages, like that's empathy. That is like taking the time to document your rationale so that it's easier for somebody behind you. You know, refactoring a method so that it's easy to read, you know, deleting the dead code so that, you know, it's, it's less burdensome, like even logging, right? You know, looking at logging in C versus Ruby, it's like, it's night and day, right? Help and messages. Yeah. Yeah. Not, Those little non ha- non-happy path decisions and code, right? Guardrails. Right? Yeah. I have yet to think, so I started thinking in terms of communication artifacts. So all of these little things that we're, that we're producing are just artifacts of our thinking. And you can't, produce a communication artifact unless you are considering a perspective. And what I noticed is that uh, the perspective that a lot of software developers had been trained to take was that of the compiler. I want to make the compiler happy. I want to make the code work. Mm. And so that's a very specific practice of perspective taking that is useful if you're imagining like, okay, I want like that's, we don't have to get rid of that. And we need to add the recognition that the perspectives taking needs to go beyond the compiler into who will be interacting with what you're creating. And that is on both the other side of the UI, if there is one, or working on the code that you've written you know, maybe six months from now, and that can be your future self. And then also who will be impacted by the work that you create? Because not everybody who is impacted by the decisions that you make will be directly interacting with. And when I'm writing content or when, you know, that is kind of the framework is getting to know the audiences really well doing good qualitative research. And so that's kind of the difference between the open-ended versus closed-ended questions. And then being able to perspective change. And then along the way, there are kind of little communication hacks, but just thinking about every single thing that you produce. And no, I have not come across a communication artifact or a thing that is produced while coding that is not somehow rooted in empathy. Because it's communication, then you can't it's all communication at all without knowing what is going to be received and how that will be interpreted. Yeah, so similar to test-driven development, where we're kind of framing things in terms of unit tests and just thinking about the test before we write the code, right? In the same way, we're thinking about the perspective of other people. We can still think of the compiler and anchoring our decisions on how it will impact other people. It's making the compiler happy. That's just table stakes. That's absolute minimum. 
Yeah. Well, it's been fascinating because this part of this project, and so I'm writing a book now, which is super exciting and by far the hardest thing I've ever done. But one of the things that, because I'm curious, I'm like, why? How did we get here? How did we get here where by all objective measures, I should have been able to go into computer science without a problem and feel like I believe yourself as technical without a problem. Yeah. Why do I still struggle? And why do we, why did we extract empathy out of this? And so looking at the history of it has been fascinating because as the computer science industry grew, there was a moment in the mid sixties, there was a um, test, like a, a survey that went out to just under 1400 people called the Cannon Perry vocational test for computer programmers. And so it was vocational satisfaction, I think, but it was measuring the satisfaction of programmers. And they were trying to assess what does a satisfied programmer look like? And there were many, many problems with the methodology of this, including the people who, they, they didn't define who a programmer was, the people self-defined Right. So it's like if you felt like you were a programmer, then you were a programmer. But there was no objective like this is what a programmer is prior to selecting the the audience, the survey respondents. And then when they evaluated the results, they only used professional men. They didn't include any professional women in their comparison study. And then like, yeah, so the women in the study, there are illustrations and the women are not presented as professionals. They are presented as sex objects in a research paper. And the scientific programmers, they're the ones who get the girl and she's all swooning. And the business programmers are very clearly stated as less than and they're shy and the girl is like, I don't want you. They have like comics or something. It was comic. Yeah, they had like comic illustrations in there. And okay, it's a survey. What's the big deal? Well, from 1955 through the mid 90s, there was a an aptitude test from IBM called the Programmer Aptitude Test, the PAT. And in there, Walter McNamara from IBM, who created it, went out and had empathy and was like, okay, let's talk to our customers. Like, what does a good programmer look like? And determined that logical reasoning was the number one attribute. Okay, sounds good. But then he said, well, if logical reasoning is the most important aptitude, then we need to create a timed one-hour math test. And what's interesting to me is that in that, there is a logical fallacy in and of itself called a non sequitur, <laughs> where it's kind of like all humans are mammals, bingo is a mammal, therefore bingo is a human. And that's an example of a non sequitur. And so that's, that's kind of what happened where it was determined logical reasoning is important to computer science and programming. All, lo- math all mathematics kind of is logical math reasoning. reasoning, therefore mathematics is the only way to measure the capability that somebody has for logical reasoning. And so that saying, okay, we don't care about communication skills. We don't care about empathy. We don't care about any of that. Just, are you good at math? And then the PAT study, there was a 
I've been diving into the bowels of the um, ACM and looking at primary resource documents for the past several months. And there was an internal memo where Charles McNamara referred to the Cannon Perry study in uh, 1967 and said, the PAT was given to 700,000 people last year. And next year, we should incorporate these findings into the PAT. And the PAT became the de facto way to get into computer science. And so these are decisions that were made long before me. And so what you end up getting then, and then also in 1968, there was what's called the, there was a NATO conference on software engineering. And they said, you know, we really need to bring rigor into computer science. We need to make this very rigorous. And again, there were no men at this conference. It was about standards and, you know, Grace Hopper wasn't even Wait. invited. Even though she was there like were no one of women the biggest, at the conference. For, there were no or women, no non-men, no non-men. Yes, and so you start to see stereotypes getting built, and one of the well, stereotypes became: if you look like this and you are good at math, then you are good at programming. And I'm very good at logical reasoning. But I, I struggle to do a time test. I have ADHD, and like that is that is something that is very, very, very challenging for me. And so that yeah. coupled with, and then you get advertising where it's like marketed to. But the neat yeah, thing is, like, I, we can undo all of this. Like, we can recognize, okay, like we can refactor all of this. But it's it takes recognizing the complexity and how did it all come to be, and then changing it one thing at a time. A lot of what you've just been talking about makes me think about Dungeons and Dragons and Skyrim for a little nerdy segue. Yeah. There are skill trees. You could be a really, really good warrior, very good at math, very good at wielding your sword. And then if yeah. you measure how good you are at combat by how big your fireball spell can be, how many you can shoot, how accurate you are, you're gonna you're you're like missing that yeah. whole skill tree of, of ability, of power that you have. Yeah. Yeah. What I find what I find so fascinating, right, is when I was going through the computer science program that I never finished, and it was this was like a million years ago, right, when I was in college. There was a very specific logical reasoning class that you that you had to take as part of the, the CS program yeah. at UT, right? But it wasn't it wasn't a math class; it was a philosophy class, yeah. right? And I think I think that's pretty common that you know legit like logistics studies fall under schools of philosophy not the schools of mathematics right so it's really interesting to me that that these dudes just completely miss the mark <laughs> I, it is <laughs> right? it is the definition of irony and not an Alanis Morissette kind of way right <laughs> it is, and I think that's the thing it's like and you know, this isn't to say that Walter McNamara was a bad person. Like, we all make mistakes. But to me, again, this is about impact, right? And if one or two people can have the ability to create a test that impacts millions of people across generations to help them feel whether or not they belong in even contributing to building software, because I always felt like I was a user of software. I was always a super user. But for some reason, I felt like the other side of, this, of the interface, like the command line, it was like Oz. Like it was like, no, those are, that's where the wizards live. And I'm not allowed there. 
And it's like, how do we just tear down that curtain and say, y'all, there is no, no, this was all built on like false assumptions. Like, how do we have a retrospective and say, when we can look at a variety of different perspectives, then we get such stronger products. We get such stronger code. We minimize technical debt. In addition to hopefully staving off biases that get built into the software. And I think it's it's very similar. I think of human systems, very similar to software systems. It's like, how can we roll back? Like, if we make a mistake and it impacts human systems, like, how can we fix that as fast as possible rather than just letting things persist? When you're talking about who can be a good software developer, when you're talking about who is technical, who is valuable, you don't want rigor in that. Right. That's that's not appropriate. Yeah. You want open questions. yeah you want well and that is exactly what happened was people conflate rigor and data with accuracy like there, there's a bias towards if it's if it's got numbers behind it it must be real but you can manipulate data just as much oh, yeah. as you can manipulate other things and you know so the pat then said okay well if you're not going to become if you can't pass the pat then we'll create all of these other types of tests. So you could be a console operator or you could be a data analyst. And what's fascinating is when you go back, like the thing that was at the very bottom of the Canon Perry survey in terms of valuable development activities was software maintenance. And that's everything now. Yeah. Back then, back then yeah. they didn't have a lot of software. Yeah. They didn't yeah. have open source libraries. If they needed something, they wrote it. But the stereotypes persist. Yeah. One hundred percent. Like we we believe in the like and in, in like the first evidence I found again was in 1967. There was a study of 12 people, all of whom were trainees at a company, which you know, wow. that could be a wild, <laughs> they had, so this, is, this is like <laughs> even, even less than interviewing your grad students. Well, yeah. And <laughs> for, so your undergrads, what if, for your graduate research paper. Yeah. They measured how quickly someone could solve a problem and they ranked them. And then they made the claim that, you know, you can save 25 times, right? This is the first myth of the, you know, 25 X developer. Well, it got published in the ACM and then IBM picked it up and then McKinsey picked it up. And then it just, you get the myth of the full stack unicorn who's going to come in and save everything. And what's interesting is all of these things go back. And th I think they were formed out of good intention in terms of understanding our world. And we under understand now exactly like you said, Jess, like, that's not the right way to go about it because then people who are really needed on software teams don't feel like they belong. And it's like, well, do you belong? Right. That that's an outsized impact for such a tiny study. Yeah. And so that gets me thinking like, what kinds of things am I doing that might have an outside impact? And can we make that impact positive? Yeah. And when we find out that it wasn't, 
you know, can we learn from our mistakes? And I think one of the things too is taking the idea of, you know, as people are coding, it's like, well, who's actually going to read this? That's something I hear a lot. I used to feel that way about alt tags, right? I'm like, who actually reads alt tags, right? But then my friend Taylor was in a car accident and lost his vision. And he was like, I absolutely need alt tags. And tell you that changed everything for me because it went from like this abstract, like I have to check this box and I have to type something in and describe this photo to I care about my friend Taylor and like, how can I make this experience as best for him as possible? And that is empathy, right? Because in order to have empathy, you have to connect with a single individual. Mm. Empathy is a group. And actually, when you do form empathy for a group, that you get polarization. So empathy Um, cuts both ways. It can be both mm -hmm. very positive, but also Focusing on the individual goes Mm -hmm. a long way. Mm -hmm. So for our discussion here, I can share an individual I've been talking to about this kind of problem. I have a friend who's a woman trying to get her first software developer role. And she has to study how to hack the coding interview for a lot of the places where she wants to work, which is literally like studying algorithms that you probably won't use in the job. And I had Mm -hmm. an interview a few years Mm -hmm. ago that was the Google style algorithms interview for a front end role. Front end developers don't write algorithms generally, not unless you're working on like the core of the framework, maybe it was completely irrelevant. And I rejected them. I think they rejected me back too, probably, but I wouldn't work there because of their hiring (laughs) process. But my friend, who's a woman in tech trying to get in, doesn't have that kind of leeway to reject. She wants to get her first job wherever it is and is willing to uh, use the bias system like that. And to like hack the system, like to study specifically how to get around it, which isn't really helping anyone. Yeah. So how can we help reform the system so she doesn't have to do that kind of thing? And so the people like her don't have to to get into tech. I don't yeah. know. Like I, my boycotting that one company is a very small impact. How do we get yeah. companies hiring practices to change is a hard hard problem. It is a very hard problem. I can share what we are doing at Corgi Bytes to try to make a difference. I think the first thing is that in our hiring process we have core values mapped to them. And some of them are you know, these are kind of offshoots of our main core values, one of which is communication is just as important as code. So we have a, every single applicant will get a response. And that seems so, like, duh. But the number of people who I hear who are just ghosted and, like, submit an application and it goes out into the ether, like, that is, in my opinion, disrespectful. And, you know, we have an asynchronous screening interview. So it's kind of an application and it's take your time, fill it out. And it's questions like, what's an article you found interesting and why? And what do you love about modernizing legacy code? Like some people need that time to think and just to formulate an answer. And so taking some of that pressure off. And then at the end of our, like we have all of our questions mapped to our core values I'm still trying to figure out how we can get away from more, you know, kind of the dreaded technical interviews, but we don't, we don't use the whiteboard, but we, we kind of also have a core value of anything that someone does for us, like in terms of whether they show up for an interview, they will walk away with just as much benefit. They will have an artifact of learning something or 
Like it's not like spec work is, I think, immoral. So some of these core things So we use exorcism for us where it's so Katrina Owens as a way of like, okay, show us a language that you're like really familiar with. And then because with what we do, you just get tossed into, okay, it's like, okay, let's pick Scala. It's like, you've never tried functional programming before, but then just, it's more of like seeing the mindset because I think it's challenging because we tried getting rid of them all together. And we, we did have some challenges when it came to then client deliverables and doing the job. And so it's a balance, I think. But yeah, and then at the end of our interviews, doing retrospectives. So telling the candidate, like, here's what you did really well in this interview. Here's where it didn't quite land for me. Because I, I think, you know, interviewing is hard. And like you said, Casey, especially now post-COVID, I think more and more people have the power to leave jobs. And so I think the power, especially in software developer development for people who have had at least their first position, they have a lot more power to walk out the door than they did before. So as an employer and as somebody who's kind of creating these, that's, that's what I'm doing. And then, you know, if we get fi- feedback and I mean, I think the whole idea with empathy is it's, you're never going to be able to be perfect because you don't have the data for every, the perspective of every single person, but being open and listening. And when you do make mistakes, owning up to them and fixing them as fast as possible. If we all did that, we can make a lot of progress on a lot of fronts really fast. I'm so glad your company has those good hiring practices. You're really thinking about it, how to do it in a like supportive and ethical and equitable way. I wonder how we can get we, we probably don't have the answer here today, but how can we get more companies to do that? I think you sharing here might help several companies if, if their leadership are listening, and that's awesome. Spreading the message, talking about it more. That's one thing. Glad we're doing that. Yeah, the place that I work at, we're about to start interviewing some folks, and I really like the idea of having a retrospective with the candidate after, you know, maybe you know a couple of days or whenever after the after the interview right and you know taking the time taking the 30 minutes or whatever to sit down and say this is if i if i'm going to take time to reach out to them anyway and say you're moving on to the next round or we have an offer for you or not then i should be willing to sit down with them and explain why well i think the benefit goes both ways actually and so we do it right mm-hmm. in our interview so we actually say you know the last 15 minutes we're going to set aside. Oh, wow. Okay. So we do. And, you know, that's something that we prep for ahead of time. But then we get feedback of like what went well, right? Mm-hmm. And what we can do better and yeah. what we can change. Because otherwise, as an employer, it's like, I have no idea. You know, I'm just kind of going off into the ether. But then I can hear from other people's perspectives. And it's like, okay, you know, and then we can change things. But that's an example of. We think of like employer versus employee. And it's like, that's another like dichotomy. And it's like, no, we're all trying to get good work done. So, yeah. Andrea, how do you do performance reviews? We're still trying to crack that. But there's definitely a lot of positive psychology involved. And what we are trying to foster is the idea of continuous performance or continuous feedback is what we call it. And so we definitely don't do any kind of forced ranking. And, you know, there's a whole, that's a branch of um, things that 
have contributed to <laughs> challenges. But I think, you know, we have one-on-ones, we check in with people, but a lot of it, I think, is asking people what they want to be doing, like genuinely, like, and as a small company, I mean, we're like 25 people. So it's, it, I think it's easier in a small company, Yeah, you can but yeah, so, but part of it is like, and we we're constantly doing this with ourselves too, like my business partner was like, I really want to try to be the CEO. I've always wanted to be the CEO. And so I stepped back actually during COVID. And so we focus on being a really responsive team. And so then that way it's less about the roles. It's less about rigidity. There's a really great book in terms of operations called Brave New Work by Aaron Dignan that has a lot of kind of the operational principles around this. Team of Teams is another really good one. But yeah, just thinking through like, what's the work that needs to be done how can we organize around it? And then thinking of it in terms of more of responsibilities as, instead of roles. I want to think of it as as a relationship. It's like, I'm not judging you as a developer. Instead, we're evaluating like the relationship of you in this position, in this role at this company. Yeah. How, how is that serving the company? How is that serving you? Yes. And I think that's that's a big piece of it is, you know, and, and also recognizing that context is really important and trying to be as flexible as possible, but then also recognizing constraints. And so there have been times where it's like, this isn't working, right? But trying to, you know, use radical candor as much as you can, that's something we've been working on, but trying to give feedback as early and as often as possible and making that a cultural norm as opposed to the, oh, I get the 360 feedback at the end, you know, twice a year, like that. Uh, yeah, um, I'm sorry. If you can't tell me anything within two weeks, don't bother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like one example is like, you know, we've, we've fostered this. And as a leader, I want people who are going to tell me where I'm stepping in it and like where I'm messing up. And so I yeah, kind of use that retrospective at the end of the interview says that. Mm hmm. But yeah, I'd but even with my staff, say, hey, it's you like, didn't send me a Google Calendar invite. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, we should totally be doing that. Does yep. anybody tell them that? No. <laughs> yeah, totally. But yeah, so I don't claim to have the answers, but these are just little experiments that we're trying. And I think we really lean on the idea of continuous improvement and marginal gains. Arthur Ashe had a really great quote, start where you are use what you have, do what you can. And I think that's the thing, like the whole point of the empathy driven development framework is that if you're a developer working on the back end, writing a, a nice commit message or giving quality feedback on a pull request instead of just a thumbs up look good, looks good to me, that's a small act of empathy that you can start doing right away. You don't need to run it by anybody really. Hopefully if you do, like <laughs> that's a problem. Like if your manager and we've we've seen that, but that but there are small ways that you can be empowered, and leaning into those small moments and doing it again and again, and then creating opportunities to listen. Because empathy, I think the other thing is that people tend to think that it's a psychic ability, right? You're either Data or you're Deanna Troy, and uh, Jamil Zaki, right. yeah, the Roddenberry effect. Jamil Zaki out in Stanford coined that. I think that's the thing. I've always been told I'm an empath, but I don't think it's 
telepathy. I think it's just I've gotten really good at spotting patterns in facial recognitions as opposed to like Scott. He's like he can just glance at home. Oh, you're missing a semicolon here. That is the same skill. It's just in a different context. I love that parallel. Yeah. Recognizing small things in facial expressions is like noticing missing semicolons. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so powerful. That's so vivid for me. Yeah. Going back to it, that made what something that you said earlier, Andrea, really click for me, which is that so many people who are professional software developers have this like very well-developed sense of empathy for the compiler, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's not that they're not empathetic. Yes. Right? They have learned over their career to be extremely empathetic. It's yep. just for, for their computer. Yeah. And in the same way, you can learn to mm-hmm. be empathetic towards your other teams, towards your DevOps group, towards the salespeople, toward, you yeah. know, like anybody. The flip side of your non-technical is you're not good with people. Because Scott got this all the time. He's like, you're good with machines, but you're not good with people. And when he told me that, like, when I, I was like, I've known you since we were 11. Like, you're incredibly <laughs> kind. Like, what? I yeah. don't understand. So in some ways, you know, my early journey here, like, I didn't come with all the baggage. And so there is this, like, this industry is weird. <laughs> like, this in- why, how can we unpack some of this stuff? Because I, I, I don't know. This feels a little odd. And that's an example. And I think it's exactly that. It's cultural conditioning. And it's from yeah. this, like, you're good with math, but we, we don't want you to no. be good with people. If you're good with people, that's actually a liability. That was, that was one of the things that came out of the testing of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s. I can't wait till this book of yours comes out because I, I'm so curious to read the basis of all these myths that we like have unconsciously been perpetuating for years right and yeah like i don't know why but there is there is this myth there are these myths like if you're technical you're not good with people and you're not you know what i mean and like it's yeah i can't i I can't wait to read it you can go to empathyintech.com you can sign up for the uh, for the newsletter, and we don't email very often. But Casey actually helps me run a Discord channel, too, or server, Discord server. So there's nice. folks where we're having these conversations. And it doesn't matter what your role is at all. Yeah. And, and just let's start talking to each other. Andrea, that's beautiful. Thank you. That makes this a great time to move to Reflections. At the end of each episode, we each get to do a reflection of something that stood out to us, and you get to go last. Awesome. I can go first. I've got, I've got one. The idea that empathy is being able to view and identify other perspectives is one that is something that I'm going to take away from this episode. I spent a lot of my career as a software developer and spent another good chunk of my career as someone who worked in like operations and, you know, DevOps and sysadmin kind of stuff. And there's this like, you know, historic and perpetual tug of war between the two. And there's, you know, there's a lot of my career as a systems administrator was spent 
sitting down and trying to explain to software engineers why they couldn't do this or why they're, you know, this GraphQL query was causing the database to explode for four hours every night and we couldn't live like that anymore, right? Like stuff like that. And to my shame, I often, you know, I would default to <laughs> this, this idea that these software engineers are just idiots, right? And that wasn't the case at all, right? Well, I mean, probably not, <laughs> not the case at all. Almost always it wasn't the case at all. Anyway, <laughs> but the truth of the situation is probably much closer to the idea that their perspective was tied specifically to the compiler and to the feature that they're trying to implement for their product manager for customer X or whatever, right? And they didn't have either the resources or the experience or the expertise or whatever that was required to add on the perspective of the backend systems that they were interacting with. And so maybe in the future, a better way to address these kinds of situations would be to talk about things in terms of perspective and not idiocy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> a really powerful question there is, what's your biggest pain point and how can I help you alleviate it? It's a really great way to mm -hmm. learn what somebody's perspective is and get on the same page. Yeah, I like that a lot. Nice. I noticed the part about how a lot of the help happens when you have empathy for the individuals who aren't on the happy path, who aren't the great majority of the people using the software or the requests that come through your software. It's like that parable with the, there's like a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray and the shepherd is going to leave the 99 who are fine. They're on the happy path. They're good. And go help the one because some other day it's going to be another sheep that's off the happy path and that one's going to need help. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Today you, tomorrow me, right? That's how, that's how that works. Right. Uh, the thing I'd been picking up is about feedback. Like the best way to develop empathy for someone else is to get feedback, to get their perspective somehow. And I've I've done retros at the ends of meetings, like all the meetings at work I ever do. I even do them at the end of a Pomodoro session, a 25-minute timer in the middle of a pairing day. I do them every Pomodoro. Anything to check in on? No? Good? Okay. Well, sometimes we do. But I've never thought to do it during the interview process. That is like surprising yeah. to me. I don't know if I can get away with it everywhere. The government might not like it if I did that to their formal process. Maybe they, maybe I can get away with it, <laughs> but it's something I'll think about trying. I would like feedback and they would like feedback. Win-win. Yeah, I've never done it either and it makes perfect sense, right? Like I I have a, a portion in my I have a portion in my interviews where I say like right in the beginning, I say this is what's going to happen in the interview, right? And I spend 5 minutes going through and explaining we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about this and we're going to talk about you know, just, just like, you know, normal signposting for, for the interview, right? And it never once has occurred to me to, at the end, say, okay, this is what we did, right? Why don't you give me some feedback on that and I give you some feedback about you? Makes total sense. Awesome. For me... I have been wanting to come on your show for a really long time. I was telling Casey, I was like, 
I love the mission of expanding the idea of what coding is. And so I just feel very honored because for the longest time I was like, I wonder if I'm going to be cool enough one day to. Yeah. So there's a little bit of fangirling going on. And yeah, I just, I really appreciate the opportunity to just dive a little bit deep and reflect and think. And, you know, as somebody who doesn't mold, it's nice to get validation sometimes that, you know, the way I'm thinking is valuable to some people. So it gives me motivation to keep going. Yeah, it's it's nice when you spend a lot of energy trying to care about what other people care about to know that other people also care about this thing that you care about. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having oh, Thank you. The fastest way to reach out to me and make sure that I see it is actually to go to corgibites.com, corgi like the dog, bites, B-Y-T-E-S.com. And send an email on the web form because then that way it'll get pushed up to me. But the, yeah, I, I struggle with email a lot right now. So, to, and um, I'm on Twitter sporadically and I'm also that's on good. LinkedIn. Yeah. That's I am <laughs> a long form writer. Like I'm actually really excited that I have a hundred thousand words to like explain my talk. I, I do not operate well in the like 140 character kind of world, but yeah, but I'm on there um, and also on LinkedIn. And then the book website is empathyintech.com. And there's a link to the Discord channel and um, some deeper articles that I've written about exactly what empathy in tech is and what empathy-driven development is. And then, yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm writing it with my friend Carmen Shirky Collins, who is another uh, copywriter who's now in tech over at Cisco. And it's been a joy to be on the journey with her because she's super smart and has a great background and perspective too. And if you want to work on meaningful, impactful legacy code in ensembles, check out Corgi Bytes. Yeah. And if you want to talk to all of us, uh, you can join our Greater Than Code Slack by donating anything at all to our Greater Than Code Patreon at patreon.com slash greater than code. Thank you everyone and see you next time.